worship that you could participate in. And all the fruitfulness of the land was acclaimed as the work of those gods. Maybe it was because the people just seemed so impressive to a bunch of recently former slaves. These people had lived in the land a long time. They had cultivated the land. They had art and politics. They had technology and wealth in ways that the Israelites just didn't have. And maybe it was just easier to find a way to coexist with these other people than do what God had said. I mean, life was busy enough. You've got crops and herds to care for. You've got trades to learn. You've got marriages to maintain. You've got children to raise and social circles to be part of, to say nothing of all the other demands on their time and money and energy and emotion that their God was making. It might be a shame that various parts of the land weren't theirs, that there were strongholds opposed to them all over the place. But what could you do? The city of the Jebusites was attacked by Israel again, even burned with fire. They really tried, but they couldn't get the inhabitants out of the stronghold. High on a rock just seemed impregnable. Maybe some things were just not meant to be. Centuries passed and the false gods drew Israel away from their true God again and again. Some in Israel were deeply distressed by this compromise. Others seemed to have no problem with it at all. And most people lived between those two extremes, probably wishing things were otherwise, especially when they thought about those promises that God seemed to have made. But this was the situation. If there was a Hebrew version of the phrase, it is what it is, that was probably the unsatisfactory conclusion that they had come to. And so, nothing changed. Until one day, when Israel had a new king. His name was David, and he had a history of believing God. Now, he wasn't perfect by any means, but he had believed God when facing a giant of a man who was mocking Israel's armies and their God. David had believed God and defeated him. David had believed God when he had become a fugitive from being like the most famous guy in the land to being hunted by the king. David had believed God that God would change the situation and God had. And so now, having become king, David would believe God again as he looked up at the fortress of this city which no one had been able to capture. This city, which also had the rather more famous name of Jerusalem. In 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 6, we're told, the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. 
And David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Therefore it said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from the millow inward. And David became greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. This is God's word. And Jerusalem was to become the most important place in God's world. David made it the capital of the nation. He brought the Ark of the Covenant, the dwelling place of God, to that city. His son Solomon built a temple to house it. And so Jerusalem became the city of kings and priests and prophets, literally and symbolically, of massive importance. David was the person who made this happen when so many before him had not been able to. Now, in our day, Jerusalem doesn't have that significance because God's kingdom is an ever-expanding kingdom. And the command that Jesus has given his people today is to make disciples of all nations. This means that nowhere and no one is off limits to God's people because nothing is impossible for God. And God's people endeavour to bring the kingdom of God in its goodness for all people wherever and whenever we can. By our individual actions, the things that we do where we are, and also by working to encourage systems and cultures that are righteous and just. But we don't always experience the success that we hope for. People and places resist our best efforts in our own lives and in the lives of those around us and where we live and where we work. There can be things which feel like the fortress of the Jebusites did before David came along. These these things that we know are wrong and yet are there. Maybe the way things are, but not the way things are meant to be. And in a world full of sin and rebellion against God, there are many of these. We walk or scroll past hundreds of them every day. But maybe there is one which is particularly close to home for you. Maybe literally where you live or where you work or, or emotionally what you have connected to, what you have resonated with. And its presence, its ongoing, the ongoing situation distresses you, even offends you. It feels like a mockery of God or perhaps even a reason to doubt him. Now, there are different ones of these. As I said, there are so many of them and God calls different ones of us to feel that way about certain different things. And there's some of us who, or some people who, ha- who feel particularly that the, the sharp discontinuity between how it is and how it should be. People particularly who are prophetic will feel this, this sense of that is so wrong. God is so good and that is so evil. God is so wonderful and that person doesn't know him. And they live with the pain of that almost. 
But all of us who are Christians should feel this in some way or other. Maybe if you don't feel that way about anything, today is the day God is going to get your attention. That as the righteous creator God, he feels indignation at these things and he wants to share more of his heart with you about the state of our world or the nation we're in or the people you know. I believe that God wants to give us fresh faith today so that we can act like David did. David changed Jerusalem from a source of national shame to a source of global goodness. From a place where God was scorned to the place where he was worshipped. And frankly, I was pretty sure God wanted to do this anyway before our time of worship when God just said that again and again and again and again. Didn't he? So like Dara kind of knew what I was talking about, but none of the other people who shared did. And yet God said again and again that if you've been persevering, if you've been trying to do it right, and yet this thing is still there or this thing hasn't changed and you're asking God if it will, wouldn't it be great if God would encourage you in that today? Wouldn't it be good if God had arranged this entire service to speak fresh faith into you or even new faith into you? Wouldn't that be kind of him? That is what he's doing. Okay, I would have said that anyway, but I'm now utterly certain of it. So I think it's just a mo- let's just pray for a moment. I'm going to then say some things that will help us ground this, hopefully. But Lord, we just feel, I do just feel like we are where you want us to be. We're really right there. And, and so we want to listen to you. And we want to obey you. And some of that's going to mean saying sorry to you that we've dialed this down, set this aside, just let it be. Some of it's going to be honestly telling you why that happened and confessing our weakness as well. Lord, we want to be those who persevere. We want to be those who follow you, Jesus. You've spoken, you're speaking to us by your spirit today. You're calling us to follow you. And we say yes right now. We're going to hear some more and going to say yes again. But Lord, we just say yes to you. Keep it working amongst us, Lord Jesus, please. Amen. Amen. So before we look at what David got right, which I think will be helpful, I also think it's helpful to look at why we don't always act with this kind of faith. Again, it's been suggested a couple of times, but I want to go into that a bit more because I think it is useful for giving us clarity to confess our sins, to give us clarity to acknowledge our weaknesses. It might feel a bit depressing um, for a while. That's okay. We're not going to end on this point. Um, But we often need to go through it because when we bring our faults and our weaknesses honestly to Jesus, he greets them with mercy. He's not like you. He's not like your boss. He's not like your parent was. He, when he, you bring these things to him, you say, I'm sorry, this is what I'm like. He's like, I know. All right. And we need to be set free. We need to receive grace and divine power 
to go where he wants us to go, to do what he wants us to do. Do you know what? He loves to do that. He would much rather do that than you continue to rely on your own strength. So let's just identify some of these things. And if they're yours, you can just start praying to God about them straight away if you like. So some of the things that stop us from persevering and keeping going and bringing change where God's called us to. Well, there's fear, isn't there? There's fear in all sorts of ways. There's a fear of the unknown. Many people will settle for what they have, even if they know it's pretty rubbish, rather than risk things to get something greater. Because if they could, if they, they're like, it's not great, but I've got it. It's not great, but I know it. So the idea of trying something that would risk that, I'm just not prepared to do it. We have a fear of the unknown. Oftentimes there is a scale, the sheer scale of the task and the commitment required to bring change about. I think just the numbers of people involved, the amount of money, the amount of effort that would cost me, how I, what I would have to learn, what we would have to do, how that massive, seemingly unchanged thing would have to change. I cannot comprehend that. I'm just a bit scared of that then there's the fear of the opposition we might face, that we would face. It might cost us our reputations. It might cost us our security in, in money or place. It might cost us our safety. So we see something and we think, no, that's not right. And then we start to do all these maths and these fears kind of creep into us, being like, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Have you thought about that? Then there's the fact there's just so many wrong things. Like so many demands being made of us. So where do we start? I mean, maybe it's not this one. Maybe it's that one. Maybe it's that one. I spent a good 10 years thinking what it might be. And even if we are really clear, and even if we are prepared to pay the price, we're really busy. Like, life is just busy. Modern life is not designed to have space in it. Have you ever considered that? But we do jobs that have big responsibilities, which require time and effort, we have relationships which require attention and investment. And if that's not enough, we carry devices around with us all the time, which are made by experts at grabbing our attention. And they offer us unlimited entertainments and investments. So either, hey, you're a bit tired, so watch this. That'll help you cheer up. Or, hey, you need to grow, and you need to improve, so watch this and do this. But whatever you do, don't have any margin. Whatever you do, don't have some space in your life. If someone tells you they're not very busy, I think most of us just will look at them and be like, I don't understand that. <laughs> because even if I don't have a job, and even if I don't have that many relationships nearby, and even if I don't have, I still have something that fills my time. There's also our cultural moment with its dominant attitudes of unbelief, mockery, cynicism, and hopelessness. And its insistence that we focus on ourselves above everything else. Now, you might not be like that, and you might come from a culture that isn't like that, but if you're living here, that is the water you are swimming in, and those are the currents that are pulling however, whichever direction it is you're trying to swim, whether it's against them or with them. So all of this is going on around us. And all of those are the reasons that anyone has for not doing something, whether you're a Christian or not. Because the good news is the Christians have got even more reasons 
for this to be complicated. Isn't that great? Because <laughs> Christians often try things, and sometimes they don't work, and that leads us to doubt ourselves, which is hard, and to doubt God, which is harder. Is he really as good, as faithful, as wise, as powerful as we had believed? I've, I've tried things before for him and it, it went wrong. How can I be sure the same won't happen again? Those are deeply emotionally complex questions for people who want to love and trust God. And we have an enemy who constantly makes accusations against us and against God. Sometimes it just feels better not to do things that will raise those kinds of questions again. Then there's other things like the fact that God is sovereign and works on a different timeline to us. And that we live in a fallen world where sin and death have huge power. That Jesus told us to tell everyone about him and said that though many are called, few are chosen. And he said to, to love people and to help them in need. And he also said you're always going to have people who are poor around you. And he gave us an example that makes us want to work for peace and prosperity and health. And he said that there will be wars and famines and pandemics. That's just the Bible. And it can be pretty easy to take some of those experiences and some of those verses and say, I'm out. I'm just not going to try. Probably not going to call it that. I'm, gonna say, I'm just going to focus on these things. But it leads to apathy and inaction. And you know, even if we read those verses closely, even if we look at what they're really saying, they are certainly not telling us that this is all going to be really simple. And it's because of all these complexities that history has given us a variety of Christian responses to the fortress of the Jebusites. Some people have charged straight at it. Other people have worked for the longer term plan. Some have made a lot of noise about it. Some have been very quiet. Some have focused on internals, just praying and praying and, and building the, the, the army, the community, the church. Others have focused on the externals, uh, bringing down the systems of government and influence. There's a whole load of ways to respond to this. Great. Okay. How does this help us believe that Jebus could become Jerusalem? I think it's important to acknowledge that because some of that's true for you and you need to bring that to God. But it's also important to realise that because that is the situation that David is living in when he comes to the city. Famously, when he was young, David faced a life or death circumstance with Goliath. Well, he didn't face it, he walked into it, didn't he? And he said, of course I'm going to kill that guy. And as you get older, you're like, yeah, young man. <laughs> there was more to it than that. But young, clear faith for David is like, of course I'm going to do that. Then David has years of courtroom politics 
and difficult decisions and relationships that get messed up and frustration and tragedy and delay. And we read in the Psalms how he responded fully emotionally to those things. So David, when he is before the gates of Jerusalem and they're saying there's no way this is going to happen, has a lot of data in his head, a lot of experience with God. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold. So we can have all of that. That can have been part of our past experience. Nevertheless, we can step in and do what God has called us to do. So how do we do that? First thing, David had a general promise from God, which he applied to this specific situation. God had promised Israel all the land. That's a general promise. Jerusalem, where was it? It was in the land. Therefore, does David need a specific promise about Jerusalem? Not really. Many times we do see David inquiring of God what to do next. He doesn't seem to do so here. He clearly has a heart that is always wanting to listen to God. But he knows that Jerusalem's been promised. And that was enough for him to believe that the stronghold would fall. Now, if you're a Christian, you have been given promises by God. That he is going to gather a people to himself from every tribe and tongue and nation. That is what he's going to do. That is what he's doing. You don't even live at a time where you're not sure if that might happen, where it's just kind of fairly small part of the world that knows about Jesus. We live at a time where Jesus is known in almost every nation. So we see that this is happening right now. That should be enough for us to have some faith that when we tell people about Jesus, some of them are going to respond positively and become followers of him. That if we plant churches, they will grow because this is what God has said he's going to do. That if we share God's love in ways that do other people good, he will cause that to flourish. Specific promises can be really, really helpful when we want clarity, making a hard decision, or when it's just hard and we need to be encouraged to persevere. To have a specific promise, a a thing that God spoke to you prophetically about, can be really helpful. And you know what? If that was you today with this situation, that has happened to you today because there have been so many prophetic words and then this breach happening. Those are wonderful moments. But we don't always have to wait for them. We have the promises we need to act on. So what is it that you need to act on? What is the specific that you're going to apply this general promise of being those who tell people about Jesus and bring them into his kingdom, being those who make disciples, being those who build and plant churches, being those who share the love of God with the world? Those are, they're there. What is that promise? Going to, how is that promise going to apply for you? Or maybe, um, how are you going to keep going? What's that thing? And if you, maybe you've prayed about it for ages with God, or maybe it's just God's raising the whole issue for you today to believe him. But this is a day of renewed faith for you, that that specific application that you were believing God for is, is fine. It wasn't just your own idea. It was doing something that God has called you to do. What is that for you? So that's the first thing David did. And then the second thing David did is he saw the opposition for what it truly is. So David and his men approach the stronghold and they are met with mockery that's designed to humiliate and intimidate them. You will not come in here. The blind and the lame will ward you off. 
You know what has happened when your lot came here before. You tried to defeat us. You couldn't do it. It's going to happen again. Look at our walls. Listen to our weapons. Remember our resilience. Remember your failures. This kind of trash talk might have reminded David of the words that came out of Goliath's mouth all those years ago when he went out to fight him. Goliath said to David, am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? Come to me and I will give your flesh to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field. It was physical and verbal and spiritual intimidation. But David saw Goliath for what he was, an uncircumcised Philistine. What that means is he was an enemy of the true God whose rebellion could not be long lived. And David knew that the Jebusites were the same. So they could give it all that for as much as they wanted. David knew who they really were. Our enemy wants to overwhelm us with intimidation and undermine our faith in God. So he says things to us like, you can't do that. I know what you're like. Those days, those days are long gone. That will never happen here. Did God really say? He wants to draw our attention to his power. He's very powerful. He wants to draw attention to our weakness. We're very weak. But that is not the full story. And he knows it. But sometimes we forget it, particularly in the moment. We have been told the full story. We know that Jesus defeated him in the wilderness and on the cross and in the grave. We know that Jesus has triumphed and therefore that if we're on Jesus' team, we will be victorious. Now, we don't know exactly how that victory is going to work itself out. But David was like, in this context, I know what this victory is going to look like. It looks like me taking your city. Why does David think that? He might be, well, do you know, he has got some skill. He's, he's, a, he's a good commander. He's got some men with him. Sure. But that's not really what's decisive. Because this is the third point. That our battles belong to the Lord. So exactly how David and his men took this city, it's not really clear. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> The Hebrew phrase translated water shaft, we're not quite sure what that is, what that means. But this is what we know. They were outside the city and they didn't have it, and then they were inside the city and they had it. And the narrator doesn't need to give us a lot of the the bit in between, because it's not the point. Again, the parallel between Goliath and the Jebusites is helpful here. David said to Goliath, so Goliath badmouths him, and then David says, you come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin. The weapons of the world, of this present age, it's fading away. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. The Lord saves, not with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hand. In concluding the account of the capture of Jerusalem, the narrator says, David became stronger, greater and greater for the Lord, the God of hosts, was with him. That phrase, with him, 
is used a lot in the Old Testament as a way of saying that God was working his power and bringing his victory through that person. If God is with that person, they do things for God. Or more to the point, God does things through them. It's a way of reminding everyone, those in the stories and those of us reading them, who was responsible for the victories that were won. David grew greater and greater because the Lord, his God, was with him. Now then, let's take that bit of knowledge and apply it to a Bible verse that most of us here know really, really well and hear a lot, but maybe don't always hear this about it. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, he's saying, look, I am with you always to the very end of the age. That line would be, I mean, it'd be great if it was just an emotional sign-off, wouldn't it? Like, wow, that's such a lovely thing to say. That's not what it means. It is a promise long known to God's people of his power and victory being worked through them. We are more than conquerors, Paul promises, through him who loved us. He who is in you, John said, is greater than he who is in the world. Revelation 12 gives us a vivid summary of this and of how we fight our battles. He says, the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who's called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers is thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. There's a significant difference in Old Testament, New Testament battle techniques here, isn't there? Even if there's a tone of language that is the same. So David conquers through military might, but the conquest proclaimed in Revelation comes through Jesus' death on the cross, our faithfully speaking about his resurrection and even our suffering. And church history has proved this again and again and again, that when God's people act in their weakness, in their impossibility, but in trusting God and in relying on the death of Jesus and the resurrection of Jesus and the ascension to victory of Jesus, when God's people do that, God does amazing things and strongholds are pulled down. It's happening around the world, all sorts of impossible places right now. And I believe that God wants to do the same kind of thing in the same kind of way among us today. So, will we, as William Carey said, expect great things and attempt great things? Like David and the Israelites, we see challenges and insults to God's good rule all around us. There are injustices and there is ignorance. 
People don't know who Jesus is, let alone see and encounter him through a community of people who love him and know him. Will we have faith like David's? Surely, sure, I wrote, <laughs> surely God is calling us to grow in this. He surely is. He's spoken to us so clearly this morning. We've considered some of the reasons that tempt us not to think that way. We've admitted them before God, that we have fears, that we are selfish, that we're distracted, sometimes legitimately, but often not. But hopefully we've seen from David that those who believe what God has promised and who see the opposition for what it truly is and who trust God to bring about the victory will do remarkable things for God, even in our days. They might fall in a day as Jerusalem did. It might take the whole of your life and even beyond. But a day will come when you will look at that and say, God did it. And he made me part of it. Will we be those kind of people? Why don't we stand before God and ask him to help us? (coughs) 